You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. David Zaritsky of The Bond Experience. It's a website all about the world of James Bond, especially the fashion, and and we met each other over over watches. Uh, David, how are you? I am fine, Ariel. How are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I've actually really been looking forward to our chat because I'm going to admit some things to you about my gaps of James Bond knowledge during the show <laughs> that might shock you a little bit. Um, mostly that I have not had the opportunity to watch the first half of the movies. Like I've seen bits and pieces of them, but as a kid, I never saw the Sean Connery one. So I really only have a working knowledge of the modern James Bond. And it seems like everyone in our space that's into gear and fashion and watches and just literature seems to know about so much more James Bond than me. Should I be ashamed of myself? You know something? No. You, you're you called a human. Um, there are people that are fanatical like me that study the movies, and, and we're probably the other extreme. So I think together we'll probably make a good team. Yeah, because, I mean, people are always like, oh, do you remember this movie where there's this one little scene here and there was a Seiko? I'm like, actually, no. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's there's so much. How many movies are there total? There's 25 movies, and that's only if you include the... Eon-sanctioned ones. There's a couple of other ones that are floating out there in the uh, Bondosphere. You know, it, it wouldn't be fun if there wasn't Shades of Grey in this space, right? Absolutely. There has to be. Seems like every genre has that. Now, you can't separate liking watches without James Bond, outside of mm. the fact that um, watches have been featured so heavily in the books and in the movies. And today, Omega is the official sponsor and has been for quite some time. Just something about who this character is, like it would be incomplete without a watch. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the fact that you're, you're never really going to see Bond. Shouldn't say never, never say never. Um, but you're not going to really see him wearing an Apple watch because there's something about Bond that's very nostalgic and traditional. The whole, the whole aspect of embracing the old ways. And to many people, wearing a watch, a traditional watch, is embracing the old ways and the pomp and circumstance behind accessories for men. So Bond goes, excuse the pun, hand in hand with that. But isn't that more a modern phenomenon? Because I remember, I think it was in Spectre, and I think it was very he was very proud, the character of the fact that the watch didn't do anything other than being a watch. But that seems to be a very modern phenomenon as James Bond sort of matures and has more of a legacy. I well, so Spectre, and this is where we can we can fill in each other's gaps. Welcome to it. Um in Spectre, the watch actually did do something. It was uh it was an explosive device. Q actually teases him. When Bond asks, you know, what does it do? And he goes, it tells the time. Okay, because there was that scene, right? It, there was that scene, absolutely. But of course, the watch does have, he goes, the watch has a, a loud alarm. And of course, oh, the alarm okay, is He explosive. was coy about it. He was very coy about it. He was, he was. Okay, <laughs> now this is, I, I think I have to get right to this topic because it's so crucial for me. Sure. James Bond movies introduced something. I could be wrong. It may have not been where this was introduced, but it introduced into pop culture the idea that your watch could hold gadgets. And there were these features that the watches would do in the movies that was absolutely impossible in real life. They would take real watches and they would have them do non-real things. And these were outstanding things, you know, lasers and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, it was it was always highly imaginative. And in other movies, you started to see this this sort of inspiration where mm -hmm. there was gadget watches or watches that did things. Now, I remember back in the day, there was Dick Tracy and the radio watch and stuff like that. But it, it, tell me, was was James Bond really where the gadget watch entered the world of cinema? You know, I think so. And, and if it wasn't the official entry, and I'm sure somebody in your podcast audience is going to correct us, um, it's certainly the one that's the most renowned. When there is a watch, for example, in the Bond movie, literally up until obviously 2021 with the new movie, you expect it to do something. And that's because of the legacy of, you know, 
in the beginning with, uh, let's, let's say, Sean Connery, there really wasn't a particular gadget. Even his Bretling top-time watch from Thunderball was simply a Geiger counter. It was just, you know, kind of radioactive. So it did something off. It wasn't until Roger Moore that you really started to get more of the gadget kind of slapsticky action. Okay, but that was in there, and it definitely had a big effect on, I think, pop culture because mm-hmm. in the same era... Uh, in the 80s and things like that, you had the basically the gadget watch come out of Asia. And until then, for the most part, wristwatches were fine instruments to tell the time. But as digital watches became more and more popular, the ability to have more and more features started to be thrown in them. And that, and I think the world of cinema, created this very ripe area of people being into watches, not just for style, but as gear and gadgets, which... I think is a little bit different than maybe a generation or two before. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. And and I, I'll tell you, there was an interesting thing that happened uh, probably in the early 1970s, maybe 73, 74, where Bond was seen with one of the first Pulsar LED digital watches from Hamilton. Right, right. And people went freak. I mean, they, their jaws dropped to the point where Shortly thereafter, in the Spire Love Me, he started to wear the Seiko. So the digital watches really, and I mean, these things, you know, told messages. It had ticker tapes come out. It had explosives. All kinds of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like makes me drool. Do you remember the movie They Live? I do. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sunglasses, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, but in this watch, in this movie, there's a Rolex President watch worn by uh, each of the the aliens, and that watch was this sort of multi-purpose thing, but it also opened up a portal, so it was a teleportation device. And I didn't remember it was a Rolex at the time, but you can go on YouTube and stuff like that and see that, you know, subliminally watching this classic, you know, horror movie. There was watches as a gadget, a Rolex president as a teleportation device. And that has left an effect on me and a lot of other mm. people that I think make so much. Like, I don't know if the MBNFs of the world or just sort of your Breitling emergency watches would have much of a market if it wasn't for us style slash gadget watch people. I absolutely agree. It's, it's interesting. The event that you and I went to, I was talking to some of the senior uh executives over at Omega. And I said, you know, percentage-wise, you don't have to be exact, but what's the percentage of of person that comes into the boutiques, into the stores, and has a reference from some sort of movie or event? Uh, Wouldn't that be great if they actually told you? Well, they they speculated. (laughs) They said it was definitely over 60 to 70%, which is huge. Wow. That's that's something to admit, isn't it? It it really is. And and so, I mean, maybe they were doing it because they knew that I was a Bond fan, but I, I think that's got to have some sort of accuracy and behind the, the doors they've been chatting about those things. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, and this is something I do know for a fact. Um, there are a lot of watches worn in the movies and things like that, but something about Bond, I actually have seen people in an Omega store come in and basically say, do you have the watch that James Bond wore in this movie or that movie? Or sometimes they'll actually, this was years ago, they would bring in like a, a, a an advertisement from an actual mm-hmm. magazine or newspaper that had the, the James Bond watch. It's like, you know, a picture of James Bond the watch. Do you have this one? I've never seen that with any other type of cinema character. Um, you know, no one's like, I want the Rambo watch. I mean, there is watches <laughs> that Rambo wore, but no one's as obsessed with it as as the James Bond one. So there's a lot of truth to that. And in 1993, I think that was the year when, Omega decided to officially start working with with you know the James Bond cinematic universe. I had I don't think they had any idea what a good investment it would be. No, I don't think they did. And it's so funny too because with Casino Royale with the Seamaster Planet Ocean that big honking 45.5 so many people, you know, dove head first into a very large watch just because it was worn by Bond. I mean, that was it. So, you know, it was People that were watch lovers, people that were new to the watch world, that was their first foray into luxury watch. But because it was a new bond, it had nothing else to do with really Omega's rich watch history at all. Have you ever talked to Jean-Claude Bivet about this? I have not, no. Okay, so he's not known for this. He's known as the guy that basically made Hublot a big thing uh, and other things. But he worked at Omega in the 90s. So he was there when the Seamaster 300M came out, when the uh, when the you know the, the James Bond relationship started. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an underling right under Hayek, uh, and he was 
there's a lot there's 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 a lot of interesting stories about um, his history there. But he's known as someone who's very eloquent about marketing in the space. And he was there, um, and, and I'm not sure what his responsibility was, but he had something to do with this extremely important relationship. I think he learned something from that. And and I think that that the, the Hayek's, especially a Hayek senior who was a genius at this, he taught this whole group of people um, who are these sort of um, new generation of managers. And one of the things that he taught that very few other people did was the importance of getting watches into pop culture. Mm-hmm. And that is such... A problem with so many of the luxury brands is they might be amazing because no one knows about them. They don't go anywhere. But but starting with Nicholas Hayek Sr. and to all the people he trained, including Jean-Claude Bivet, um, there was so much of this idea that you had to get the watches out there in, into that space. And we can see today the winners and losers. And the winners are in pop culture more often than not. Yeah, there's, there's a whole behavioral science thing, not to get too deep, but it is kind of fascinating that nostalgia, um, I'm in the world of marketing professionally. What I, the, the bond stuff is my, is my passion and hobby, but what I do for a living is pharmaceutical advertising and marketing. And the nostalgia plays a heavy, heavy role, whether it's smells, sights, sounds, colors, um, and bond is a part of that. So So it's not take this pill and feel half your age. That's 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 a nostalgic cue. <laughs> well, that's that's our secret. That's the tagline we go with, and we charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. But that's another story. But but, but the reality is, is that with something nostalgic, for uh, for example, I'm really into Bond. I know why I'm into Bond. It's because my father was into Bond. My father was a successful entrepreneur that didn't have a lot of time, but we had, excuse the pun, a lot of bonding moments watching the film. So I was. You know, I'm you a psychiatrist story. Huh? <laughs> I did, I did. It's part of the contract. But, um, you know, the reality is, is that nostalgia, bond, and watches, they they really do go hand in hand. So Omega was smart enough, and, and you mentioned some of the players early on, to say, listen, we can capitalize on that. And you have Aston Martin, Tom Ford. I mean, you go down the luxury brands, they all do that aspect. So it really does play on the emotional heartstrings. It's not just about investment. Now, what do you say, and again, this is, this. is you wear both hats here, the bonds guy and the marketing guy, and we've both been in this situation. What do you say to the executive at the brand who truly feels that they don't need marketing, that they're, uh, that they're above marketing, that marketing is, is beneath them, that only desperate companies with crappy products do marketing? Now, we know that Having a great product is is definitely necessary, but it's really only half the battle. You know, no more than half the battle. The other half is communicating that you have a desirable product to the planet. What do you say to those managers that just think that the product sells itself? You know, I'm actually really happy to say, and maybe this is unique, I've not run into a brand leader that feels that way. I, I, I see you've never done business with a watch brand. That's good. Keep it that way. Well, it's so funny you say that. So <laughs> the only one that I've really had a, a sharp connection to is, is Omega. I haven't dealt with Rolex at all, but I will say this. Um, most of the brands that I speak to, most of the luxury brands, we do talk about, of course, products, um, but we talk about the customer experience a lot. And we talk about the disconnects of that. And then we usually get to marketing. So marketing is usually kind of the third column. Okay. Okay. And again, you're you're the professional in the space. I guess I'm just trying to muse on the fact that I have had many an experience like this. And we have to remember is that most of the CEOs in the watch space in Switzerland are mostly factory managers. Okay. Mm. And the mentality of running a factory is very, very different than running uh, a, cons- a, a, a company that sells consumer items. In the past, these companies never sold to consumers themselves. At most, they sold via wholesale to retailers. Selling direct to consumers is a relatively modern phenomenon for most brands. Omega, um, like Rolex, is a little bit different. It's part of a large group, which is very, very rich. Um, and again, had someone like you know Hayek to make it clear that they needed to be in pop culture. He sort of made this decision in the 1980s, and Omega is one of the brands that benefited from that very wise approach. But there are hundreds of other watch brands, most of them much more boutique, this whole world of the independents, as you know, that make sometimes only a few dozen watches a year. And this represents actually like several hundred CEOs who all have this factory worker mentality. If you just work with Omega, you'd be a little bit, you know, you'd be a little bit shielded or mostly shielded mm. from some of the other men- common mentalities in the watch space. 
That's fair. I mean, that's very fair. So yeah, and I will say that I'm shielded and thus don't, I mean, that, that I'll lean on your expertise in that arena. Well, I didn't know how much of a watch person you were in addition to being a, you know, a bond person. I never want to, I've been accused of like, you know, telling people obvious things or like, I know that I'm a watch collector. So I just, I didn't <laughs> want to insult anyone accidentally. No, 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 that's okay. So um, just to be incredibly transparent part of this conversation, every watch that I own is a bond watch. I've got a Rolex. I, I, I totally believe that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm the one thing I did early on because I started seriously, seriously collecting around 32 years of age. I'm 53 now. I decided I'm going to stay within the the the, the parallel lines, the confines of bonds. So that's where my watch collection lies right now. Now I'm going to ask you a personal question, mm. um, and this is something that, especially uh, as 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 a man, we think about as we. Um, age and and I always think about is is you know, you know you can never stop aging you just have to age gracefully, <laughs> but it seems to me that a lot of what you do in terms of your interest in bond is part of a lifestyle regimen to keep yourself fit and young and and interesting because that's hard work as we age and if we don't have a strategy or plan how to do that society doesn't really give us one and we see that most adults do not continue to put that effort into themselves you know physical health, mental health, style, whatnot. Um, and the ones that do really, really shine, is is your interest in Bond part of that larger effort or those things just separate interests that you have? No, it's it's 100% a part of it. So I'll give you kind of the three-phased approach because um, we're in the third phase right now. The first one was I started to try to get into shape around 2006, 2007 when I saw Daniel Craig get out of the ocean in Casino Royale. And I'm like, <laughs> the guy is my age. I have no excuse being an atrophied executive. So it was, listen, you and I are becoming fast friends. It was Did you start wearing Speedos? Is that where this is going? Well, I, I stopped just short of that. You'll be happy to hear. But <laughs> I, I started getting in shape more out of vanity. Like if I'm going to live this Bond lifestyle, I'm going to look like Bond. It changed. My second phase was I stopped doing it for vanity and I started doing it because it honestly made me feel good mentally and physically. I, I just felt healthier. I, you know, when I worked out, I felt better the entire day. I felt confident. And then the third phase, which we're in right now, is I started to share, you know, what I do and, and the things that I eat. And that's felt like the mentor phase or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, the mentor phase and just, hey, this is my little hack life moment, maybe it's going to work for you. And, and because of that, I've been able to build relationships with, for example, Daniel Craig's trainer and, and some other wonderful people that have tried to get the message so out. That That's a super important question. And you, you, mes you message seeing someone like Daniel Craig and being like, we're the same age. Now, everyone knows that celebrities like Daniel Craig have so much money to throw at the problem. They can hire full-time trainers, full-time chefs, da-da-da-da-da-da. How much effort is required realistically for men and women this age to look as good as they do? It's a lot of effort. It's yeah. a lot of discipline. And it's not a moment. Uh, it's not, you know, 40 minutes a day. It's, it's, it's consistency, but it's also what you put in your mouth. I mean, I, I tell people, because people ask all the time, like, oh, are you on paleo? Like, what are you doing to, to transform, you know, from your 30s to your 50s? I say it's mathematical, you know, what you put in, you know, it's, it's, it's a calorie thing. And, you know, I, I hate to use the, the terminology, but you have to be a bit of a diet Nazi. You know what? I and and I'm not here to counter you, but I don't like the word diet. I think it's well, just that a matter implies of, a temporary thing. I mean, a nutrition you, Nazi. Yeah, I think, but I think that's that's a good way to put it in the nutritional sense. Is that you've got to think about you're putting these efforts physically, but the physical aspect is only thirty percent of the battle. Seventy percent is what you put down your gullet. So if you're putting bad things and you're working out like crazy, aren't you fighting yourself? Why would you do that? So I'll, if, I'll say, I'll say this, which I think is the, the message I want to get across here. You know, the sure. 30%, the 70%, that's going to be up for debate forever. We ultimately aren't entirely sure. What we do know is that in addition to what you eat, if you're not active, especially as a, an adult male, you will decline very, very quickly. If you don't use it, you lose it. That is wisdom that is very, very real. And however you get your exercise, if you live a sedentary lifestyle or don't you know, do strength training, uh, get your heart rate up once in a while, stretch and make sure that you're like flexible, limber. If you don't focus on all these things physically, you will lose it very, very quickly. And that does unfortunately represent a large portion of society because we don't build in a lot of tools. Like, you know, 
people such as yourself, David, who is, you know, very sharp and keeps yourself fit and obviously takes a lot of pride in, in how you look. You have to completely engineer a life around that. You have to make a lot of sacrifices and a lot of people who are close to you might think you're a jerk sometimes. But if you're if you want to serve the higher purpose of feeling good and looking good, it requires that. Thoughts? Yeah, and I think I think it it feels like that at first, and then when it starts to blend seamlessly into your life, it it doesn't feel like discipline. It doesn't feel like an inconvenience. And by the way, there's a great cartoon out there that I saw, which just sums it up perfectly. It was a doctor talking to a patient and basically saying, "What's more inconvenient, working out uh, for an hour a day or being dead twenty four hours a day?" You know, you 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 used logic like that, but we ultimately see that. <laughs> People can't push themselves to do it. You have to have a drive. You have to have a fundamental dissatisfaction mm. with the status quo. Complacency is where we all want to be, but complacency is also the enemy. Yeah, that's 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 a very well said. I think that I, I always tell people because they're like, "What should I do to start? Should I, you know, do shopping differently? Should I buy a weight set?" I said, "No, none of those. You have to start with your why. Like, why are you doing this? If it's to look like Daniel Craig, that's not the first step." I mean, I, I made that mistake and it took me a long time to realize that. Like, what's the why behind doing something along those lines? Well, I'll, I'll give you my own personal experience. I'll give you some context. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons behind this. I can go on and on and on and on. But due to having an abnormal diet as a child, I was raised vegetarian, which means I was deprived from proteins, essentially. Uh, I was pretty overweight as a kid. When I was 17, I made a personal decision to lose a bunch of weight. And I like turned to one of those like weirdo workout people and I lost like a hundred pounds in like a year. And once you go from being someone who is obese to trying to be like everyone else, you recognize A, your body doesn't work that way. Um, and B, you have to basically have an enormous level of discipline. For me, I've always thought of it as sort of acting like a soldier. And I have to be very cognizant of my life. You know, weight fluctuates up and down, but at the end of the day, I, I have to dedicate a large number of hours during the week to go to gyms, to do exercise, to be active, to, to remind myself. I mean, what do they say is the hardest part? Actually getting your gym clothing on and getting out the door <laughs> as opposed to being at the gym. And that's, and that's true. And I have to beat myself up over it. And I don't know if everyone else has the discipline and I'm not sure if they're going to get it. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And it's one of the most frustrating, but also rewarding things for people. And that's why it's a multi-billion dollar business because you know, it's a part a, of all a Swiss, that. A Swiss specialist, I was at this place in Switzerland, talked about this. She said something to me that scared me to death. She said mm. that, and this was over a, uh, nearly a decade ago uh, when I interviewed her. So this was, uh, it had even been longer. She said that people like me, more often than not, put the weight back on <clears throat> and then some. And she said that I was basically like a one percenter, having done what I did and kept it off that long. And that scared me because I did not want to think that I am one percenter material. Like it shouldn't be that hard just to get to where I am. And I think the problem is we forget that people used to be forced to exercise. You had to go upstairs. You had to walk here. You had to lift a bunch of stuff. Now we have to pay to do things that people <laughs> would have gladly paid other people to do in the past. Yeah, in many cases, that's absolutely true. It's not natural to take money to go pretend like you're walking down the street on a treadmill in a gym. Like it is, it is, it's not wrong, but it's perverse in the sense that you have to wrap your mind around something that's, in a sense, unnatural. Mm, true, true. And I, it's interesting. I stopped going to gyms, oh gosh, probably like four or five years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do all uh, studio class stuff now. Kill me if I'm going to be in, on a treadmill. <laughs> exactly. So I, I do just like P90X3, and then I love me just a good walk. I don't run, um, not a fan of running, but just cardiovascular. And then even things during the day. Running's really my, high impact. You can, you know, peop, there's a lot of dangerous things people do. Like, you know, it's worse yeah. than. Uh, being a little out of shape, having a torn MCL. Oh yeah, and and also the uh, there's so many organ issues with running. Um, ugh, don't don't get me started. We've moved away from Bond for so a moment. So you know from How pharmaceuticals. So wait, wait, I want to go one more. We got to go back to Bond. But what secrets <laughs> do you know about health and stuff like that? Having worked directly with the pharmaceutical companies, what can you tell us? So actually, quite a bit. You, you're going to have to hone it down and ask me a question because 
let me put it to you this way. Literally at 21 years of age, I started in the pharmaceutical industry and I'm 53 now. So I haven't been in any other industry other than the pharmaceutical one. Okay. What's some great pills to take uh, that are just good? Because the marketing says everything's great. What are actually some of like the greatest drugs or like phenomenons do such a good job? Just like people should be so happy they exist or should take them. So this may surprise you. Maybe it won't. It has nothing to do with probably anything you've heard before from a disease state. It's it's like, well, ALS, I know you've heard about, but there's an yeah, amazing yeah. product out there for ALS. ALS is an unfortunate death sentence. It, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. It robs you of organ function. This actually slows down the erosion of those organs over time. I mean, it's it's like a miracle drug. There's other ones in oncology, you know, pediatric oncology is, as you can imagine, incredibly sad. Um, and destructive, but it's not chemo, but there's something out there now. It's an injection that actually is is a life-saving technique for young children with cancer. Wow. So, I mean, those are the good ones. The ones that are, you know, vanity or look, I should be careful about publicly saying things about cholesterol, but you know that cholesterol is uh, something that the pharmaceutical marketing groups have had a wonderful time with and were oh, yeah. very successful. But not something you should really worry about. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, th now, how excited are you about this emerging set of, of pharmaceuticals that will come with mRNA technology, which is now reality, and, mm. and how, you know, in, in the Pfizer, Moderna, I mean, I studied it a little bit. I'm so excited by, uh, by the potential. Is someone in your position also excited? I'm excited. I am. It's It's interesting, too, because things like biosimilars, which is, you know, becoming all the rage right now, uh, moving away from some of the immuno, you know, suppressant type of brands. It's, it's all very exciting. I try to stay up on top of it. But as you can imagine, my job is often taking a brand who's a mature brand, everybody's forgotten and reminding them of it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's, again, again, I need to learn more about sort of the specifics of what you do. I'm just saying, um, it's it's easy to sort of cast a shadow on pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical marketing, but mm. it's such a challenging job. I mean, I've had to delve into science very, very deep to understand how most of these drugs work, how they're communicated to doctors, the rules and limitations around communicating them, all these types of legal things. Like trying to market your pharmaceutical in like a legitimate way is actually very hard to do. And so people that help that are very, very useful because there's a lot of harm out there that, like you said, pharmaceuticals can definitely treat. And so I think it's very important for people to stay highly open-minded about it. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the things I'm proud about, and I swear I'm not going to make this sound like a commercial, but my company it really goes out of their way to focus on what they call unique or specialty uh, care pharmaceuticals. So we don't do the Lipitors of the world. We really focus on ones like you know, factor nine products where people have trouble coagulating blood. There's one where there's a disease where children can't go out in the sun. You may have heard of this. They used to call it almost uh, like a vampirism. Uh, oh, I've heard of this thing. Yeah. Or there's one where they can't sweat and it's horrible things. There's all kinds of horrible yeah. things. They call the kids shadow jumpers because they have to play at night. They go to school at night. They can't even walk by a window because their skin burns. So there's, there's, there's a brand for that. You really don't need to sell that. You need to educate people. And to your yeah. point, you know, the, the studies that you've done from a science standpoint, half the battle, maybe more, with pharmaceutical advertising is not advertising, it's education. Just telling people what it is and how it works and what it's supposed to be used for. That's it. And is it right for you? I mean, it almost connects back to our original conversation of watches. It's like, you know, not every watch is going to be right for every person or, you know, what? how do you choose? Because you can't own every watch in the world. That's the hard thing for so many of these watches. I got to say, David, they have a beautiful story. They're amazing. But you need to be like a really seasoned collector or enthusiast to learn all these different things. Like, here's what a beautiful movement looks like. And here's what a beautiful dial looks like. And this is what beautiful finishing and polish looks like. And this is what a beautiful aesthetic design looks like. And after you've learned all that, check this out and be impressed. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, that's one thing I doff my hat to you because just listening to you at the event that we were at, I mean, you know your onions, clearly. I, I was sitting there because I had purchased the No Time to Die watch, you know, many, many, many months ago as a consumer. And basically, choice. I just, I was like, oh, I love the brown patina. I love that it's, you know, 
uh, not glossy. I love that Bond wears it. I mean, there were like four things and I'm like, sold. I, I didn't even know about the movements and some of those other things. So that's why I kind of uh, drink from other people's knowledge. That you are sort of dabbling a little bit now more in watches. Is it interesting you? Are you saying, you know, I'm happy just wearing them and enjoying the way they look. I don't need to know how they work and stuff like that. Like how deep down the rabbit hole are you curious about going? Yeah, I I haven't delved dove, whatever you want to say, um, that deeply. And I'll tell you one thing. And again, I, I, we're having a comfortable conversation here. I did start to get curious about, oh, the, the watch world or community, if you will, you know, outside of the bond community. Right. And I found that it was a pretty <laughs> unfriendly place, to be honest. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back to the bond community world where everybody, like 96% of the people are really nice. It's, um, yeah. so t- give, give me a little bit more. You're not wrong, but I can't say it um, as diplomatically or politically correctly as you can. So sure. tell me more about what you observed in the, yeah, uh, the cutthroat watch media space. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you know, the amount... I, let me tell you where I come from, and then I'll tell you what I noticed. Sure, so sure. the Bond community, and, and I mean this hand on heart, um, and maybe I've just been very lucky, but they are just an incredibly supportive group. I've never seen anything like it. I've been into Marvel. Okay. I've been into Star Wars. Um, they're just very supportive, you know, whether it's charitable or supporting each other, the comments. I mean, I hardly ever have to delete a comment or, you know, admonish anybody. It's It's been remarkable. And then you get the 4% that are like, oh, okay, it's that person. You know, they, and that, that, those people usually are just fighting with relevance. You know, they, they maybe were relevant and they're not relevant anymore. And now they're upset. So you know where that, that hate is stemming from. The watch community, I started watching some YouTube videos and then I read some of the comments or, you know, following <laughs> some of the threads. And people were like, that Emmer Effer, you know, don't listen to him. He's an Italian son of a bitch and he doesn't know. And wow. then I'm like, okay, maybe that was just an isolated. And then I'm telling you, 50% of the things were about ripping the person apart as opposed to talking about the watch. And I'm like, these are attacks, like blatant attacks against people. And I was just shocked. And I'm like, all right, maybe isolated. Moved on to another one. <laughs> Not isolated. And then a couple watch people were asking me to go on their show. So I went on their show and I did their shows and then I read the comments and I'm like, holy hell. Like, <laughs> it so was this just is, amazing. So it's, it's, really, it's really as bad as I thought. Okay. I, well, I mean, to an outsider, yeah. Well, was, I thought every community was this full of vitriol. Um, not the Bond community. Let me tell you what. The watch community was like the Bond community in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mm. think the Bond community is newer, smaller, still feels very quaint and yes. personal. Yes. Um, I think mature spaces as they grow and maybe sometimes contract start to have all these different types of personalities. The watch space has a very weird thing where over the last few years, it's attracted a lot of, I'll just call them influencer entrepreneurs. Not real watch enthusiasts, or maybe if they are, but they're mostly interested in selling. So for them, they're calling themselves media, but they're really a salesperson. And the introduction of the people that are actually dealers and people that want to be paid for their influence added a very negative element. And the problem was, is everyone seemed to believe there was a lot more money flowing in the space than there is. Um, I, I have to explain to people that despite this being the luxury industry, they are very spendthrift um, in mm. in in marketing and things like that. They don't, it's not a place to get rich as an influencer or a, a, a watch media personality. Um, it's just, it isn't how it is, but it maybe looks that way from the outside. So you have a bunch of people that go in here all gung ho for a year and then start to get increasingly dissatisfied because they're not growing the way they want to, because it was never possible to begin with. And they're angry and they're pissed and maybe they eventually leave or figure out something that works for them. But you see the side effect of an enormous amount of that. Yeah. I and, and you know something, even dipping my toes in the water, I did see that. Um, I, I won't name this gentleman, but there's a, there was a gentleman that um, I did uh, his program a couple of times. And I saw that uh, there was definitely a, an influence aspect to it. Of what do you mean? Inter- what did you see? Um, well, I mean, what did he do from an influence standpoint or? Or, yeah, I'm just curious what behavior it was. Well, uh, so so he was associated with a uh, a company 
that actually, like you said, trade and and sold watches. So it was sponsored. His, okay. his uh, YouTube was sponsored by this company. And there was a mixture of the comments being, I mean, there were some, obviously the majority were, were positive, but there were a lot of kind of infighting or, you know, saying, obviously, uh, how do you give an impartial review of something, uh, ego, you know, because of the luxury space. I mean, it was all of that. But I, let me, let me uh, bring up something that might help explain some of this. You're familiar sure. with the concept of the rap battle and how a lot of like hip hop music is these various personalities just sort of having a kind of dissing conversation with one another and that that's a really big part of the sales. It's less about the music quality, more about this kind of drama. Yes. Yes. I have so, heard of it. It's 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 not it's not sort of the entertainment genre that I'm into, but seeing it from the side, I understand its appeal and things like that. And online, especially in the social media context, that's been what has drawn a lot of audiences. Is sort of watching this soap opera that goes between these people. So there's sort of a you know call it a, a backdrop, if you will. Here it's watches, but it's really interhuman drama. It's never really about the watches for these people. So. These are individuals, more power to them. There's definitely an audience for that, but I'm really about the product. I don't really care yeah. about promoting Ariel Adams. I mean, I want to be known for being professional and, and hopefully people like what I do. But, you know, I, I want to help people get into watches. I'm, I'm trying to be like an advocate for watch appreciation, not do what Ariel Adams says. I just try I to be a voice of reason. And that's fantastic. And that's but I just why ignore it's these people. All these people, yeah. I just ignore them. They're like, okay, you're hanging out in my watch space, <laughs> but I need to distance myself because I don't do what you do. I'm not interested in that. I don't think that what you do has any appeal to anyone who's like, I want to get into watches. I want to understand how to buy these and appreciate them. So do those individuals try to entice you into their hemisphere from time to time? Not as much as I thought. Um, I think sort of part of my reputation is that I just, don't really participate in that stuff. I'm not a, mm -hmm. I'm not known as a petty person. You know, I have a legal background, so I think I write in sort of a more professional, maybe academic way. I, I don't I don't really invite it, if you know what I mean. So I don't yeah. really think yeah. I get drawn into it. I was told something interesting. You know, there's all these like um, watch humor Instagram accounts and, and other places on social media where they they make fun of bad bad taste. They make fun of some of the media people and the retailers or watches they don't like. Or, there's all kinds of things. There's a lot of them is about you know fake watches and things like that. And apparently, you know, some of the media people in the space are pilloried on a regular basis um, or just you know ruthlessly made fun of. And I'm told, you know, no one really ever has anything bad to say about a blog to watch it. You know, if if ever, um, you know, it's. I think that we have a mutual respect with the rest of the the media. Uh, I have a good sense of humor. I, I like having fun. Um, but I also stay away from some of the traditional things that are, are bad areas to go online. Attacking people's um, you know, personal character, advocating for one taste over another, um, you know, being a bully. Um, you know, I, I really believe in debate. I love debate. It energizes me. But as you know, there are rules of debate. And when you violate those rules, you go from having a, a, a civilized discussion to rudeness and, and whatnot. And the internet's full of that, but if you know the rules of debate, you can just leave those things out. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Exactly. And, you know, there's something to be said. You know, I know it's hard for, for some people. Uh, when you have an audience, any audience, it could be two people, it could be 200,000, you know, also understanding that, if somebody says something to you and tries to engage you, you have a choice. I mean, how you deal with those things 
is really up to you. So it's it's kind of helped me from a from a mindset standpoint over time. Now, do you ever think to yourself, what would James Bond do? Like you're making a decision in life and you're like, <laughs> okay, so does that, does that work out well for you? You know what? It does from a, a fantasy standpoint. I mean, I don't make my key decisions that way, but it is interesting that you say that too, because if I get too emotional about something, for example, I'm like, dude, be cool. Like, you know, relax, chill out. Um, there are some things, you know, the misogyny, murder, you probably don't want to take away from Bond. <laughs> the, um, hey, self-defense. Well, that's it. That's it. But the other things, you know, being calm and cool, um, being even sometimes having an economy of words is also something you want to gravitate to. Talk like you have a scriptwriter. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, there is a team of professionals adding words to feelings we have all the time. Why not adopt those for our own use? Yeah. And I, you know, something that becomes, maybe you do this as well. Um, if, if anybody's a cinephile, they tend to do this where you drop those into your everyday vernacular and it just becomes a part of who you are. I have this weird theory about sort of the way our, our personalities are constructed. We like to think of ourselves as being independent and having free will and, and making all these unique choices. Um, we live remarkably similar lives to our fellow people in terms of life trajectory, where we all end up doing sort of the same things and living sort of the same, same ages and making a lot of the same accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um, and our personalities really seem to be the result of bits and pieces of things we pick up all over the place. Um, we're like a vacuum cleaner of culture. It all gets mixed up and then spewed out. And that's why I think that we relate to some people more than others because we've we've collected bits and pieces from some of the same pop culture. And that's why you can hang out with people and instantly be like, everything you're saying and all the things you like seem so relevant to me. I want to hang out with you more. Or alternatively, wow, you people are some from some other universe. You, you know, you still eat and you sleep and you do all the same things as me, but I don't feel like I have anything in common with you. And so, A, it's one way to think about who we get along with, and B, it, or, it also sort of forces herself to ask, you know, how creative are, are we, or are we just sort of selectively picking and choosing things through society? Well, I've got I've got a pretty strong opinion on this. And, and first of all, I, I do get questions from time to time. You know, David, why is your YouTube channel so engaged with so many people? And by the way, all age groups, like twenty five, you know, fifteen, all the way up to ninety five, and different from the baby bonds, different genders. <laughs> well, that's it. But I think a lot of it is is because. Think about this. In style history, a lot of people have have had templates. You've had Steve McQueen, you've had Paul Newman, you know, Ryan Gosling, uh, you have James Bond. And a lot of people will use, for example, my YouTube channel as a style template of, you know, I don't know the, the everything about uh, polos and things like that. I'm gravitating. What kind of blue ones? I'm not going to get a Tom Ford one for $900, but you know, maybe I'll go to JCPenney's and get one for $19 but how should it fit? So a lot of people will use it as, you know, kind of a playbook. And I will argue with anybody that says, well, how original are you being if you've got a copy off of Daniel Craig? I would argue with that person and say, we are all a composite of the experiences and people that we run into. It's it's a part of our behaviors and who we are. Otherwise, you're a blank slate. I don't know if I walk like Sean Connery. I don't know. Because I don't know where David Zeritsky ended anymore because I've, I've adopted so many other styles and pieces from other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's composite is absolutely the right word because, you know, a composite is a stronger uh, material than the little bits and pieces it's made out of. I absolutely agree. So that's a good way of looking at it. So it's like, you know, who are your heroes going to be? It could be worse than Bond. It, it could be. And, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because... Heroes from a different aspect, heroes from the character that you witness, but also heroes of engaging in part of your lifestyle and accessories. And, you know, whether it's choosing a watch or or choosing a suit, I think some people will use that whole emulation tactic to understand, is that the lifestyle? Is that the clothing? Is that the car that I may gravitate to? Well, okay. So in past culture, Especially in religion, you had these characters in religion, the saints, if you will, if it was mm. sort of a Christian religion. Sure. And these, uh, or before that, in polytheism, it was just the different gods and things like that. But throughout culture, there's always been these um, fantasy characters that represent ideals. They have achievements that no humans could have. 
And people sort of select which of those characters do they relate to. Um, you have early idolatry um, in, in everything from Aztec society to everywhere in the world where people had what basically looked like action figures of their, their, their preferred mm-hmm. idols. These have taken on cultural and religious and mystical elements. But at the end of the day, throughout culture, human beings have always had these, these stories, because they're not real, of characters that they somehow want to be like, and they use them uh, to, to guide their decisions or their, their, their course of life. This seems to be a necessary part of the human experience. Sometimes we belittle it. Sometimes we, we underestimate its power. But in a, in a way, these characters on screen, Batman and Bond, are the new saints. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm happy to report to you that I've not put any altars up to my 12-inch Daniel Craig doll <laughs> from Sideshow Studios. But I will say this. My watch, you know, for example, the, the things that I love about my hobby is that I call it an invisible hobby. I can wear the clothing, the the accessories, the watches out in the world, and nobody knows I'm doing it. If, if I was into being a stormtrooper, people might realize I'm wearing armor. But if I glance at my watch in a meeting that is particularly stressful, I will find myself escape, be catapulted, relaxed for a moment. So I'm not saying it's like the idols of old that would give people peace of mind, but there is something very relaxing. Maybe it goes back to the nostalgia, very soothing of some of these accessories. And listen, you could argue with like, oh my gosh, the things are owning you, but no, it, I'm just being symbolism. realistic. You're reminding yourself that you're part of this universe, that it has meaning to you. It exactly. Sometimes these symbols are very public. Sometimes it's like wearing, you know, a, a Louis Vuitton label on you. That is that makes you feel good, but it's also a public statement. But a lot of people, especially as they get more mature and confident, tend to be a little bit more discreet about it. Somebody else who's really into Bond fashion be like, "Oh, I see how that guy's dressed. That's awesome." But you don't care if the layperson notices. That doesn't that doesn't please you anymore. Exactly. And I think, you know, since 1962, Dr. No, uh, you know, the, the costume designers have been very conscious. I think there's a handful of uh, unique examples, but mostly they have stayed away from brands, you know, where it was something garish that said, hey, look at me, I'm Fred Perry, or hey, look at me, I'm Izod, you know. So it's been interesting that it is those bond is about subtlety, you know, and intrigue, not overtness. Okay, so now I want you to talk about the bond fashion staples. I want you to tell people who are listening, if they sure. want some just very versatile things that can give them a more Bond appearance, what would some of those things be? You can just rattle off a list and explain how you might use them. I'm curious, but I'm sure a lot of people want to know because they, yeah. can't, they can't get as deep as you. But if you could buy like a dozen things that are Bond staples, I'm sure a bunch of people would add that to their wardrobe. Absolutely. And what's interesting is you could have a lot of fun with this and say, all right, but who is your Bond? So if you if you love Sean Connery's movies, for example, or if you love Daniel Craig's, my answers might be different. So what I'm going to do is I'll stay in the universal world of Bond, okay. Bond as a character. Um, and the first thing, obviously, is, is just a good midnight blue Navy suit, dark okay. Navy suit. Here's the key to a Navy suit. I always tell people this. It doesn't need to be ridiculously expensive. It needs to fit incredibly well. And men tend to buy suits one to two sizes too big for themselves. Because they're constricting. So that's the question. How do you get a suit (laughs) that fits well, but you can move your arms? They don't need to be. If a suit fits you really well, it shouldn't be constricting. And, And fitting does not mean fitted. It doesn't mean skinny. It means that you can move with it. I'll give you a perfect example. I'll give you a good example and then a terrible example. So a good example is Tom Ford, which I know for many people, prohibitively expensive, five to $6,000 a suit. But what they do is they actually will make a suit around you very often that has a certain amount of stretch in the areas that you need to stretch. For example, the shoulder blades, you know, the gusseted crotch area, uh, the knees, they're very conscious of that. But if you want to spend $700, you can go to a company called Suit Supply and buy a midnight blue you know, two or three button suit that is absolutely beautiful that has stretch in it. So it's not just, you know, worsted wool like your dad wore in the 60s and 70s. It's got, uh, it's actually has a little bit of spandex. Nobody will know. Don't worry. You know, you're not going to do aerobics, but it'll actually give with you. And then there's some actually that you can get on an airplane. And guess what? It will never need ironing. You can roll it up in a ball. You can come off of a nine-hour flight and you're going to look the money. So 
technology. But this is all the stuff you need. This like you don't yes. want to wear the suit if you can't move your arms. You don't want to wear it if it's going to be wrinkled. Like so, what you're saying is that there are the there's the things out there that will look good on you, but still be I'll just for lack of a better term ergonomic. Absolutely. I, my number one thing. This is going to throw people off. Is not that it, it's it's a Bond brand. I swear it's not. It's what's what we call the hand. What what is the what does the fabric feel like? I. I've, <laughs> this is too much information for you and your crew, but um, I have very sensitive skin. So I need really soft material. I can't have anything itchy. I don't want restricting. I hate wearing a suit that makes me feel like I was shrink wrapped in it. Yeah, I just so bought a, a 100% silk mask for long flights. So I know what you're talking about. Nice. Perfect. Great example. You know, I like if I get a cashmere sweater, I'll get 70% uh, cashmere, 30% silk from NPL cashmere or something like that. And that stuff just feels like ethereal. It feels like there's nothing on you. It's ridiculous. Okay, more clothing items, because I don't want to get off topic here, because yeah. I, there's got to be so many. Okay, so we had the, uh, we, we basically ended it dark navy <laughs> fitted suit. And you're done. No, um, but I would also say that um, a good polo, a navy polo shirt, and again, you want this to be, it's got to fit you well. It can't be, you know, hanging off you. It shouldn't be a golf shirt. It shouldn't be that it's going past it's your elbows. It's always about the sleeves, right? If the sleeves yeah. are too big, it's an instant way where it doesn't look fitted. That's right. I mean, you want to hit it. Uh, the rule of thumb, which is, you know, listen, you don't have to go by the rules, but mid-bicep. It should hit you mid-bicep. It shouldn't be fabric over your shoulders, and it um, the line of the sleeve shouldn't be uh, closer to your neck. So you want to have it so it's fitted well. And the other thing is, if you need a little extra room in the waist, fine. But here's a little hint for people. If you can find a polo, and there's a lot out there, with what's called a banded hem or a banded bottom, it makes large guys, thin guys, and guys in shape look really good. Okay. Okay, good. So we have a navy suit. We have a navy polo. Same color navy or? Uh, same color navy because he's a military guy. He tends to wear those you know, dark, dark military okay, that's right. navy that's right. shoes. Uh, you want to get a stone-colored or beige pair of chinos. Okay. Uh, you can you can you can stone color. That seems very like what would what color that would that be? Stone is almost like a gray beige. It's not white, certainly not white, but it's almost like a grayish beige. So it's okay. Would like that be you, called khaki? You can yeah, you can do the khaki as well. Believe it or not, their khaki is like a little bit more brown or taupe. And now mm. we're getting into ugly material, but. Um, it's hard. If, sh one shade, one direction or another can make it or break it. <laughs> it's so weird that way with the pants. If for people, if they want to stay safe, if you go in there and say, excuse me, uh, khaki chinos, please, you do not want to get what's called a traditional fit and you don't want to get a straight fit. You want to get, and this is really important, you want to get what's called a slim fit. That's not skinny. Guys don't look good with flamingo legs. It's just not legs. baggy. Just not baggy. Exactly. You don't want to look baggy. So you made it sound like it was going to be easy, but like as someone who, you know, has purchased themselves pants before, you're going to have to do some shopping to find this stuff. Or you could go, or go to, to your website, the Bond Experience YouTube yes. channel, and go in the playlist. <laughs> no, and and that's a legitimate shortcut because, I look, I know enough about fashion to know that it's really hard to find the thing that looks good that also feels correct. And sometimes I just I just give up. I'm like, it's too much. Because I know I can't just go to one store and be fine. I have to freaking like hunt and gather to find like good clothing. And it's like that for, women seem to have a higher capacity to do it. I don't, I, I just don't have the interest that they do, but we all have the same needs, right? So men to find, you know, good clothing. You know what city is actually my favorite city to buy men's clothing in? And I've, I've tried to buy men's clothing in a lot of cities. What, what do you think it is? It's in Europe. I'll give you, that's the, that's the hint. Um, Vienna? I actually haven't bought clothing in Vienna, but I'm guessing okay. it's going to be like similar to Italy where it's small. Is it is it in Italy that you're talking about? No. The, here's the thing. Milan, A, if you're an American guy who's not extremely, extremely thin, it's going to make you feel like a fat person, okay? Yeah, agreed. Everything in Italy makes you feel horribly oversized. Yeah, Rome, yep, yep. Second, the prices in Milan are for like Middle Eastern sheiks. I don't know who's spending <laughs> that, but like 600 euros for a sweater? What the hell's yeah. going on? Yeah, so, it's a lot. In theory, Milan would be great. In practice, awful. So would it be, is it London for you? No, but London's good. All right. That's like a second. Give me a hint. Berlin. Stop it. Yeah. That's crazy talk. I, I, I know it sounds that, but I've had so many amazing men's shopping experiences in Berlin. My style, good prices, excellently made. 
wow. sizes that make sense for me. It, it, it checks off all the categories. What about online purchases? Have you made some good online purchases? I mean, yes and no, but like, I look, I hate returning stuff. I hate my, my, my <laughs> wife. She's like, she can do it all day long. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. So for me, it's like, I wanted to know it works well. I want to buy it. I don't care if I have to spend a good amount of money on it because I know I'll use it for a while. And that's, that's as far as I want to go with it. The whole like, I'm going to try to do this. I don't have a personal assistant right now. If I did, I would do that more. Yeah. And, and some people take a shortcut when they find a brand that things fit well. I'll give you, I'll give you a real, real example, and it's Bond-related. Uniqlo, which is a oh. Japanese clothing company. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they make some incredible clothing items that are very Bond-like. Like my next choice would have been to tell you a Harrington, a Harrington jacket, just like Steve McQueen slash Daniel Craig has worn in Quantum That's the pattern, house. right? Yeah, I, so Harrington is really the style. It's kind of that windbreaker blousen type style more than a pattern. Oh, okay. I'm thinking okay, I'm thinking like um herringbone or something like that. You're thinking herringbone and there's also Prince of Wales check, which is the Connery suit. I know it goes all over the board. Okay, so wait, so so Harrington is a jet. What's it made out of? It's made like out of a cotton. windbreaker? Yeah. It's like a wind cheater. Okay, we say we say cotton or nylon? It's cotton. Cotton. Okay. And what's and it, it, what kind of collar does it have? It's got kind of a pop-up collar. It's like a cadet collar, but a little bit higher. So if oh, you look up, okay. if you look up like Steve McQueen Harrington, you'll see um, a company called Barracuda. Okay, so the that's Barracuda the one you like. Harringtons and this is a, are famous. And what, what color would, is it? A variety of colors or one specific color? So if you're going to do the Bond one, this is going to be not so shocking. It would be military blue. <laughs> this is a lot of blue, I have to say. It's a lot of blue. I know, I know. But um, a lot of his trousers have been either taupe, brown, or the color I gave you before, like a khaki. And so you can kind of mix and match them a little bit. Um, a shawl collared cardigan is a perfect example of something that Bond wears in a lot of the movies. Okay, so that's like a that's like a sweater vest or something. Um, it's more of a sweater, but with a literally a shawl collar. It's got kind of a, a turnover collar to it. Oh, I know what you're talking about. That you can, if especially for it's like marine use, so you can. It's if it's really cold, you could absolutely. Um, some people, believe it or not, they give it akin to um, uh, Mr. Rogers. Okay, yeah, yeah, but the 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 one that Bond wears has a little bit more of a dramatic flared collar. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, what about shoes? Yeah, shoes. So Bond wears everything from, uh, well, multiple brands, but he tends to wear Crockett and Jones right now. He wears a lot of boots. You know, so okay. the Chelsea he, boots. Look, he's an active guy. He's running, he's jumping. You would think he would wear sneakers. He only wears sneakers once or twice. He wears them in Casino Royale and he wears them in Skyfall and that's it. Interesting. Um, but these boots, like, could you be as active in these boots or not? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So most of my shoes are Crockett and Jones with something called a city sole. So the city sole is a non-slip vibram grip that you can run, you can pounce, you can fall off six feet in the air to the ground and roll, you, you're fine. Okay, what about other things? Um, uh, more shirts, By the way, belts? These, these shoes tend to run seven to $900. And the problem that people have- and Not I know, for the faint of heart. Right, but I, the problem is, is when someone buys a luxury item, they tend to not to use them. And I tell people what do you mean? buy these shoes. So there, I have so many people who get They're into this shoes. hobby, right? But they they will baby them because they're afraid of like getting a mark on them because they're then so don't expensive. Don't buy shoes. Like shoes are something it. you. It's like a car. What are you going to buy it not to drive it? Well, but you can't act surprised because you know people in the watch um, hobby. I'm sure that buy watches and go. I'm afraid of getting a scratch on it. Yeah, but the thing is. That's just a personal fear in the sense that you can wear the watch and still, let's say, resell it if you really want to. With shoes, like you either have this notion that you're keeping it to resell it or to use it and enjoy it. There's no in-between. Preaching to the choir. I agree. But believe it or not, you'd be shocked at how many people I need to say, please just wear them. You're going to love them. Then they wear them. Then they get their first scratch. Then they freak out. Then they love them. And then they're not worried about the second and third, fourth scratch because they realize that every scratch tells a story. Now, this is something that you have to say multiple times in the luxury space. And I, and I hate to have to say it because it applies to everyone, but there's going to be discussion about wonderful things that you can't afford. I don't care how rich you are. There'll be something. It'll be a boat. It'll be some art. There'll always be something amazing that you won't be able to afford. And for most people, it's, it's a lot more humble than those things. 
And I, I, I don't think anyone should be discouraged because, and I'm guessing it's the same way with Bond, in watches, you can love watches on a budget. Maybe you can only ever spend a few hundred dollars on a watch. That's okay. You know, you can still have a really happy watch uh, hobby just as though you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars per watch. And I'm guessing Bond is the same way where you can go very similar to how he's dressed in the movies, which is literally, you know, any budget. Or you can, you know, you can do it a little bit more um, on the cheap, maybe not have all the, the coolest stuff, but still get away with the look. I started on my YouTube channel a long time ago, something called the Frugal Bond. And oh. it's for the very subject that you're talking about. You can, if you look up Frugal Bond under the Bond experience Frugal on Bond. YouTube. That's, a, that's good. The Frugal Bond. And it's essentially for anyone. Um, and by the way, me, when I couldn't find a piece, I'd be like, well, here's a piece that looks like it. And oh, it's, it's on your website. The Frugal Bond else. Returns. Yeah, yeah. It's it's on the website. But I mean, there are, I want to say there's got, I, I can't even imagine how many videos on my YouTube channel that literally talk about links and places to go. And you know something, the items, I'll, I'll give you an example because I like to cite by example. There was a Tom Ford Polo Inspector. It's $950 for a Polo. So sure That's enough- That's a lot of money. It, it's a lot of money. And there's one out there that is $29 and it looks the, it looks perfect. Other than you know you pulling the collar back and saying, well, that doesn't say Tom Ford. Uh, and and so of course people gravitated them and it's not I I love the people at Tom Ford they're great folks it's not to say you know we're trying to knock them off it's that we want everybody to have this wonderful feeling and not feel separated because of the size of their wallet yeah and and again I don't want people to be turned off by the um, sort of cost of entry to a lot of these hobbies because. You know, I, I wouldn't do this if I had to only speak to a certain demographic of earners. Yes, you have to be able to spend disposable income on a hobby. That is an entry point. But when it comes down to it, you know, if you if you can spend $100,000 on a watch or a few hundred dollars on a watch, there's so many options out there. And so just to, I try to talk about watches in general. Yes, there might be a discussion something high end, but, you know, how many movies out there have a character in there that wears a Casio G-Shock or something like that that you can wear and enjoy? And yeah. it's the same type of experience. I mean, there are a lot of watches in movies. Bond is just one of the sort of most famous ones. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's some affordable Bond watches too. If you know people want to gravitate to just Bond, there's there's you know alternatives. Now, for most of the Bond watch experience, and we're sort of running to the end of the show here, but for most of the Bond watch experience, the watches were really weird, right? And we sort of talked about this and kind of joked about it a little bit. They were like souvenir watches, which again, maybe made sense at the time, but you'd see Bond wearing one watch in the actual movie and then they would have another watch you could buy. It was never really much of a crossover. And then more recently, they started to figure out why can't people just buy the watch from the movie? Why do you think it took them so long to get to that seemingly very logical point? There was, well, this gets back to an earlier thing that you said. It's about the brands, whether they market or not, just not listening. Um, I think some of the brands, clothing and watches, have really, in the last decade or so, started to listen to the people that are their consumers. And the consumers were saying, I don't want the 007 logo on my second hand sweeping across it because you know what? Bond wouldn't do that. Exactly. And if I'm living the lifestyle, I mean, he's. <laughs> There's, there's a sunglass company out there, um, and I, I love their stuff. I love their products. So they came out with sunglasses. Then they got the licensed, license for Bond. So what did they do? They put 007 on the tips of the end of the sunglasses. Well, the Bond <laughs> fans went nuts, not in a good way. They're like, what is this? I'm not shopping at Disney this World. This is the funny thing. It's like they know that reminding people it's associated with the Bond universe is good. They don't know how to do it. Even even at Disneyland, it's like you'll be at Disneyland, and they'll be like, "I like Disneyland, and I like Mickey Mouse on," but I don't want to wear that T-shirt that does it. Like I like those things together, <laughs> right. but you couldn't go further than that. That's just as much. You just literally put Mickey Mouse on a shirt and it says Disney, and it's not artistic. It just has. It's like it's like your stock photography, and sometimes. I think they just cheap out. They're just like, yeah. oh, people love our sunglasses. They love Bond. Just marry the two, and we're set. Yeah, that's I I as a policy, I will not wear anything with a 007 logo on it, even though I'm a huge fan. I I all the watches I have even that on I've the case in, back, David. What's that? <laughs> I said even on the case back. 
Oh, the on case the is fine. Yeah, okay. That's fine. As long as it's invisible. It's got to be okay. a hidden logo. That's okay. The hidden logo is fine. Bury it in the jewels. I don't care. But <laughs> the, the, the thing that gets to me is... Again, it's that label. You know, I, I want it to be hidden. I want it to be subtle. Like because Bond. you want to look and feel like Bond. And in none of the movies did he look at his watch and it was like, James Bond watch, 007. Like, if that had been the case, maybe you'd feel differently. But that's not how he was. He wasn't a logo guy. Yeah, exactly. And and I won't get the, the homage watches that they have with, you know, the ones with the little shields on them and the 007s. I just, yeah, it's just, just not my bag. No, and it's interesting. I think it's so important to mention this because there we we are in the era right now where the collaboration is such a big deal. It's something new, but in marketing, it's such a big deal when it comes to products. You clearly know this, but there is a right and wrong way of doing it. And you you have to create a product that serves some purpose. Nobody wants souvenir stuff. People don't really like that. I know it seems like, you know, the, the teenagers just like wearing things that say Supreme or whatever, but for the most part, Mature brands can't get away with that. Unless you're that type of brand, you can't do that. Brands want, like watch brands, this is when they serve best, when they make a watch for a particular purpose. And that's what they did with the No Time to Die watch. It's a watch for a particular purpose. That's what they're best at. And it did that very, very well. That, 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 was, the, that was sort of the, the product development mandate, if you will. But if it was like, um, we have to make a watch to celebrate this movie, and that was the mandate, they're going to come up with crap. So it really begins sort of a, at a higher level and they have to think about it correctly. Yeah, I think they're going in the right direction to your point and hopefully they never reverse. <laughs> David, this has been an amazing discussion. Um, we're, we're out of time. I want to remind everyone, go to thebondexperience.com where there's a bunch of stuff all about, all about the James Bond universe. Um, David, any last thoughts? Uh, no, this has been a pleasure. My gosh, the hour flew by. Uh, let's, let's chat again soon. Wonderful. Thank you. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Ariel Adams and David Zarissi. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?